0: Good morning, everyone turn to 1 Peter, we will start there, we'll be in a few different places this morning as this is the uh, introduction to 1 Peter, I'm going to read 1 Peter 1.1 just one more time, Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this epistle of 1 Peter. Father, I pray that you would give me words to speak, to communicate what you have taught me in this passage. Father, thank you for your servant, Simon Peter. Help us to learn more about you and about your son through studying Uh, Just these introductory words from this epistle this morning. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So just so you know, I'll be reading um, from three different passages this morning. We're going to introduce the epistle here. I'm going to begin a study here. Um, Rob's going to continue on in in Mark. um, And as I have opportunity to speak and discuss the scriptures with you, I plan to continue leading us in a study of 1 Peter. So we're going to learn, begin that study this morning by taking a close look at some of the introductory words. Uh, we're going to examine Peter's background and his reason for writing this epistle. And we're going to do that by taking a look at three scenes, three pictures from Peter's life. But before we get there, I want to make some preliminary observations about the book itself. So first of all, it's an epistle, which is a letter. Uh, the word epistle is just another word for a letter. Sometimes it's called uh, the first epistle of Peter, or Peter's first epistle, or just First Peter. Um, but it's a message from the Apostle Peter to who, these people that he calls strangers scattered. I'm reading from the, uh, the Authorized or Old King James Version. Um, other versions call them the exiles of the dispersion. Sometimes pilgrims is used. But he's writing to these people, these Christians that have been scattered throughout Asia Minor. Um, but as we approach this letter, as we approach this study... I think it is important to remember what it is. See, this book is not a textbook. The Apostle Peter didn't send these Christians a textbook. He didn't send them a collection of inspirational sayings. He sent them a letter. And in sending the letter, he had at least one specific goal in mind, and we always have to keep that in mind. We always have to keep in mind that this is a letter, that the Apostle is doing something here, that he's trying to communicate a message. This is a real flesh-and-blood human writing to other real flesh and blood people. And if we lose sight of that basic fact about the letter generally, then we'll lose our way when we go into the particulars. Now, this is not to say that we're not going to look at the particulars carefully. We will. But uh, we have to remember that the apostle, although he was moved by the Holy Ghost, we believe that. We believe that he was moved by the Holy Ghost and that every word of this letter was inspired. Uh, We have to keep in mind that this is a letter to real people and that whatever the apostle is doing here, we need to keep in our minds. And so however we understand the individual portions of the letter, we need to not lose our way. Um, A second observation is that this is a general letter. So some Bibles at the top, uh, at the very beginning to uh, the the epistle of 1 Peter will say uh, a general epistle. Um, What that means, the, the term general epistle, sometimes you see the word Catholic epistle, um, that just means it's a universal or general epistle. Um, what that means is that these epistles, in contrast to some of the Pauline, the, the, the Paul's epistles that he wrote, uh, are not to a specific audience. So Paul, he wrote Romans to those that are at Rome, called of God, called to be saints. Okay. Uh, he wrote Corinthians unto the church, which is at Corinth. Now Peter, he does have some locations here in Asia Minor, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, but he wrote this epistle to the strangers scattered, these exiles of the dispersion. And that's the way all these general epistles are, so there's several others. There's James, 2 Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Jude. All of these epistles have a more general audience than the the, the more specific audience of Paul's epistles. And why does that matter? Well, the epistle to the Romans is in many ways of first importance in the church. God has used the epistle of the Romans mightily in the church, but it was to those saints who were at Rome, and we are not at Rome, and so it can be a little harder to place ourselves in the audience, but when we come to one of the general epistles, I think it's much easier to find ourselves in these strangers scattered um, than it is perhaps in Romans. All of God's word is God's word to us, but I think that the general epistles have that special character. So I wanted to briefly overview some of the themes in Peter's first epistle here um, and talk about why he wrote this letter. So why did Peter write this letter? So we're going to see Peter in this letter repeatedly remind us that we are just passing through this world. He calls us strangers and pilgrims in chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, 11. He refers to our life on earth as sojourning. That's 1, verse 17. He warns that the world will think us strange when it sees how we live. That's chapter four, verse four. And because we are just pilgrims and strangers, uh, Peter constantly directs our attention away from the distractions of this present darkness of the world we can see, of the seen world, to the hope of the world to come. Peter tells us to place our hope in the world that is unseen, the world that is yet to come, constantly. He tells us to hope in Here in the section we read this morning, in chapter 1, verse 5, he says, the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Chapter 1, verse 7, the appearing or the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says it again later in the first chapter. He says it again in chapter 2, verse 12, the day of visitation. This is a constant theme in Peter's first epistle, that we must place our hope beyond what we can see into the world that we cannot see. And then Peter tells us that in light of this hope in the unseen world, as we are living as pilgrims, We should live holy lives of obedience to Christ, chapter 1, verse 15. And if need be, to suffer with thanksgiving and joy, chapter 2, verse 19. But Peter himself tells us why he wrote this book, and I'm going to flip to the end of the very end of the book, chapter 5, verse 12. He tells us why he wrote. Um, He says, I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein ye stand see, Peter wrote this letter to encourage us to stand. The apostle wrote to a people the world despised and still despises, which is the people of God. He tells us to place our hope in the unseen future so that we can stand. Okay? Having made these preliminary observations, let's begin. 1 Peter 1, verse 1 again, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. We really can't move beyond this point until we have some idea of who Peter was. But I want to ask a question even before that. Does it matter who Peter was? If the Bible is the word of God, and all the words in the Bible were inspired by God, does it matter who wrote them? Well, yes, it does. It does matter. That's why I dedicated a section to discussing it. <laughs> God could have given us the Bible in one piece, golden plates coming down from heaven, but He didn't. He didn't do that. He inspired people, real flesh and blood people, to write the Bible, and these people had different experiences, different backgrounds, different cultures. They had different style and different vocabulary. Okay, It has a very simple example. Think about Moses and think about Paul. God inspired Moses to write certain portions of the Bible, and He inspired Paul to write other portions of the Bible. When He inspired Moses, Moses, a Hebrew writing man, wrote in Hebrew. It's not because God learned Greek later on that the Apostle Paul wrote in Greek, it's that the Apostle Paul wrote in Greek, so when God inspired him, he wrote in Greek. This is a simple example of how a person who was inspired, their their individual background comes in. And I think we will see as we continue this study, and hopefully a little bit this morning, how Peter's unique background, terribly unique experiences, prepared him mightily to write this letter. We come to the text with a wide range of assumptions about this Apostle Peter. So some people in this room, this small cafeteria, where a bunch of central Ohioans have gathered on a Sunday morning to study a letter written 2,000 years ago by a Galilean fisherman. Okay, We come to this room with a lot of different assumptions about this guy. Who was Peter. Now, some of you in this room might have written graduate-level papers on Peter. I don't know. Some of you might say, I'm here with a friend. I'm pretty sure he's the guy that welcomes you at the pearly gates in comic strips. But wherever you're at, okay, in your knowledge of Peter, let's try to forget all that for just a second. Just try to forget for just a second what you know about the Apostle Peter. And you come to this book that you are told is an ancient letter written to an ancient church. And you come to this very first word that says, Peter. Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, what would you assume about Peter? Well, you think, if you knew some other ancient writing, maybe you'd think, well, Peter's a philosopher, like Socrates or Aristotle. Okay? Or maybe you, if you were familiar with, with just church history in general, maybe you'd think he was an academic, like Thomas Aquinas or John Calvin. Or maybe if you had some familiarity with the New Testament and you knew about the apostle Paul, you would think, well, Peter must have been a trained religious leader. But we know that none of these things are true about Peter. He wasn't an academic. He wasn't a trained religious leader. He wasn't a philosopher, not in the formal sense, at least. Peter was a fisherman. By all accounts, an ordinary, unremarkable fisherman. He was from the backwoods of Israel, a place called Galilee. See, Galilee was a distinct region in the northern part of Israel. Um, They had a distinct accent that marked their speech. We learn from one place in the New Testament that Peter was was noticed because of the way he talked. You get the distinct impression, at least I do, that Peter in Jerusalem was not unlike maybe a cast member from Duck Dynasty in New York City. This was clearly a man from fishing country. Okay. Now, Peter's first appearance in the New Testament, and this will be the first scene that we look at, is in Matthew 4. So let's turn to Matthew 4 in your Bibles. I'm just going to read verse 18 right now. I'm going to read these two pictures from Peter's life. And this is actually, one of these is an extra picture. We're not going to look in detail, but I want to place these two pictures before you and think about them. Okay, Peter 4 verse 18 says, And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren... Simon called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. A very simple, ordinary fisherman. A second picture I want to put before you, and you don't have to turn there. We won't spend much time here, is in Acts chapter 5. In verse 12, it says in Acts chapter 5, And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. And then in verse 15, In so much that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at the least, the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. How do you get in three and a half years from a guy on the side of the Sea of Galilee, an ordinary fisherman, to a man that people are trying as hard as they can, they're flocking to fall in the shadow of this fisherman? How do you get there? What happened? What changed? What affected Peter so radically? And the answer, like all good questions, is Jesus. (laughs) This morning I want to look at three scenes, three scenes from Peter's life. We've already seen one of them. It's in Matthew chapter 4 here. In these three different texts, we're going to see how Peter and his life and his mission develop because of his interactions with Jesus. And these three scenes hopefully will help us to understand Peter better, Christ better, and help us to receive Peter's message in this first epistle as we continue our study in the coming months and years. So in these three three scenes, we're going to see three things. Peter called by Jesus, okay? Peter confessing Jesus, and then finally, Peter commissioned by Jesus. So first, we're going to look at Peter's calling here in chapter 4 of Matthew, where we just were. I'm going to read the, the entire section here. Matthew 18 to 20 is how far I'm going to read. And Jesus, walking by the sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. Here we have two fishermen, Simon and Andrew, brothers, working in what was likely their family fishing business. In Galilee, two utterly unremarkable men. Jesus comes and says to them, follow me. Notice something here. Jesus could have gone to the synagogues and called religious leaders to follow him. Jesus could have gone to Herod Antipas' palace and called political leaders to follow him. But he didn't. He went to the docks and called fishermen to follow him. Ordinary, unimpressive fishermen. And do you know that this is exactly the same thing that Jesus does today. Jesus doesn't just call the powerful. He doesn't just call the wealthy. Jesus doesn't just call the highly educated. He still calls ordinary, unremarkable men and women to follow him. Accountants and truck drivers and doctors and mothers and factory workers and cashiers and retail clerks and occasionally even a lawyer or two. (laughs) Jesus calls all sorts of people from all stations in life, ordinary people of all sorts. And notice, Jesus didn't just call people to an intellectual faith. He didn't just say, believe these things about me. What did he say? Follow me. Follow me. Peter left his net, okay? He left his net, and the nets were good things. You don't have to be an expert in first century fishing methodology to know that a fisherman earned his living with his nets. These are good things. He fed his family. We know Peter had a family, and he fed them with these nets, but he left them because he was confronted. This command confronted him with a choice. You can stay with your nets, or you can follow me. Another passage in Luke says, forsook all. He left his nets and followed Jesus. You see, Jesus calls whole people. He calls whole men because he died for whole men. He didn't die metaphorically. And he didn't die just to save our minds. He died in the flesh to save whole people. He died as a man to redeem men. And Jesus still calls, follow me. We have to leave. That means for us, we have to leave whatever is standing in between us and Jesus, just as Peter left his nets. What does that mean? It depends. It depends on the situation. But if there's something standing in between you following Jesus you leave that thing, whatever it is. Peter left his nets. Now, what does Jesus call Simon to do? So he says, Follow me, and I will make you uh, fishers of men. So he's going to call Peter to make him a fisher of men. That's the, the obvious answer. But there's another clue here in this passage of Jesus' purpose for this man, Simon. It's in verse 18. It says, Jesus saw two brethren, Simon called Peter. Why was Simon called Peter? See, John's gospel expands on some of these early interactions with Jesus and Peter, and and he tells us what happened when Jesus first met Peter. This is what he says. I'll read it. You don't have to turn there, but it's John 1.42. Jesus says, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone Cephas is the Aramaic word for Peter. It's the same name. Jesus calls Simon Peter. That's why Simon is called Peter. But why? Why does Jesus call him a stone? And that leads to the second scene where we're going to see Peter confess Jesus as the Christ. It's a familiar passage, Matthew 16. As you're turning there, I am as well. And we'll get there. And we're going to read from chap from in chapter uh, sixteen, from verse thirteen to verse eighteen. When Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, "Whom do men say that the that I, the Son of Man, am?" And they said, "Some say that thou art John the Baptist; some, Elias; and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets." He saith unto them, "But whom say ye?" That I am. And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Do you know this common confession that Jesus is the Christ binds us together? It's why we're here today. What does it mean to confess that Jesus is the Christ? So that's a whole topic that we could spend the whole morning on, and maybe we, Lord willing, we will in a coming month. But put simply, to confess that Jesus is the Christ, you confess that Jesus died for your sins on the cross according to the Scriptures that he was buried and then he rose again the third day according to the scriptures because that's what the bible says the christ would do and when peter confessed jesus as the christ he said i believe you jesus are the man that the prophets told us about the christ the messiah and when we confess jesus as the christ we join peter there now we come to this phrase thou art peter and upon this rock i will build my church endless discussion endless debate what is the rock What is this rock? Does he mean, does Jesus mean he's going to build the church on Peter? Does he mean that he's going to build the church on Peter's confession of faith? Does he mean he's going to build the church on himself? I'm going to say that the only real reason for any tension in this passage is that we live in a world where the Roman Catholic Church has twisted this verse to support its false teaching that the Pope is the successor of Peter and the head of the church on earth. That's the reason there's controversy about this verse. Because of that false teaching, we sometimes go as far as away as we possibly can from recognizing Peter's position of leadership among the apostles. But Peter was first among the apostles. And God did use Peter in a mighty way to build his church. See, the apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4.20 that we, the church, we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Peter himself, in 1 Peter 2, 5 through 8, calls us living stones. So we share this with him. He's the rock. We're stones. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Being built into a spiritual temple with Jesus as the chief cornerstone. John Calvin summarized it this way. He said, hence it is evident how the name Peter comes to be applied both to Simon individually and to the other believers. For Christ intended to associate with Peter all the godly that would ever exist in the world. So why did Jesus give Simon this new name, Peter? Because Jesus saw in this fisherman by the Sea of Galilee a rock. He saw a bold man that he would use to strengthen the church, a man whose confession would serve as a model for all Christians. See, Jesus saw a man who, standing against himself as the chief cornerstone, would form such a crucial part of the foundation on which Jesus would build his church. Jesus saw more than a mere fisherman by the Sea of Galilee. Peter is the fortifier of our faith because he is like us in so many ways. Upon this rock, I will build my church. That's such an amazing commendation. It's one of the highest highs spiritually in the New Testament. I think it is the highest praise Jesus gives to a person, maybe other than John the Baptist, but it's immensely high praise. And in the New Testament, Peter has some of the highest spiritual highs we see, even in his epistle, as we're going to see some of the statements and topics he addresses are so heavenly minded that it's hard to understand them. But this man, Peter, who could glimpse the eternal so often, like us, was distracted by the physical world, by the things he could see. He let things come and and choke out his vision of Christ, his vision of the glory of the unseen world. Just after Jesus blesses him here and says, upon this rock I will build my church, we all know down in verse verse 23, he gives him probably the most stinging rebuke in the New Testament. Get thee behind me, Satan. Because Peter allowed his vision to get clouded, and he rebuked Jesus and said, Jesus, you're not going to have to die. We just studied this. And Jesus rebukes him. That's one of the most stinging rebukes in the New Testament, right after some of the highest praise in the New Testament. You see, Peter had the highest highs and the lowest lows. He could, in moments of clarity, glimpse the glory of the next world, but so often the distractions of the present world took over. When he kept his eyes fixed on Jesus, Peter walked on the sea that he'd once sailed on. But when he looked to the waves, he sank down. See, when Peter was in the... In the, the Garden of Gethsemane, Mark's going to tell us that a cohort, okay, a band, a cohort came into the Garden of Soldiers. This is, some estimates, three to six hundred soldiers came into the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus. And what does Peter do? He draws his sword against three to six hundred soldiers and cuts off the high priest servant's ear. This is a bold, brave man. But just hours later, he lets the cares of the world distract him. And he denies Jesus. To the people gathered in the high priest's house. See, Peter took the gospel to the Gentile centurion, a big breach of Jewish custom in the book of Acts. He took the gospel into a centurion's home. That was bold, and that was breaking cultural taboos. But then later, Peter becomes afraid of what the Jews might think of him if they see him eating with Gentiles. And Paul has to confront him to his face. Peter had the highest highs and the lowest lows. As many of you know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German preacher who lived in the looming shadow of Adolf Hitler's Third Reich. (coughs) Bonhoeffer was eventually hung by the Nazis, um, an incredibly brave and courageous man. And he drew strength from Peter's example. In July of 1933, just a few months after Adolf Hitler seized power in Germany, Dietrich Bonhoeffer preached this about peter he says what is the difference between peter and the others is he of such heroic character that he towers over the others he is not is he endowed with such unheard of strength of character he is not is he gifted with unshakable loyalty he is not peter is nothing nothing but a person confessing his faith a person who has been confronted by christ and who has recognized christ and who now confessing his faith in him and this confessing peter is called the rock on which Christ will build his church. But Peter's church. This is not something which one can say with untroubled pride. Peter, the confessing believing disciple, Peter denied his lord on the same night as Judas betrayed him. In that night he stood at the fire and felt ashamed when Jesus stood before the high priest. He is the man of little faith, the timid man who sinks into the sea. Peter is the disciple whom Jesus threatened, "Get thee behind me, Satan." It is he who later was again and again overcome by weakness, who again and again denied and fell, a weak, vacillating man given over to the whim of the moment. Peter's church, that is the church which shares these weaknesses, the church which itself again and again denies and falls, the unfaithful, faint-hearted, timid church, which again neglects its charge and looks to the world and its opinions. Peter's church, that is the church of all those who are ashamed of their Lord when they should stand firm confessing him. Bonhoeffer goes on. It does seem very uncertain ground to build on, doesn't it? And yet it is bedrock. For this Peter, this trembling reed, is called by God, caught by God, held by God. You are Peter. We all are Peter. Not the Pope, as the Roman Catholics would have it. Not this person or that. But all of us, who simply live from our confession of faith in Christ, as the timid, faithless, faint-hearted, and yet who live... As people sustained by God who live as people sustained by God God sustains us despite our weakness just as he sustained Peter and the crazy remarkable thing is he sustains us through Peter some of the best teaching on suffering well is in this first epistle of Peter this leads to the final scene it's in Luke 22 we're going to read about how Jesus commissions Peter we've seen Jesus call Peter We've seen Peter confess Jesus, and now we're going to see Jesus give his, his commission to Peter. Luke 22, I'm going to read verses 31 and 32. And the Lord said, this is in the upper room, they just celebrated the Lord's Supper. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted... Strengthen thy brethren. Summarize simply here we are, the night that Jesus is going to be arrested. Jesus prophesies that Satan is going to sift these disciples. It says here in verse 31 Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you. That's a plural pronoun. Jesus is referring to the disciples. But I have prayed for thee. He's talking directly to Simon. Satan is going to sift the disciples. Sifting was a process that they used in the first century where they take kernels of wheat that have useless chaff on the outside and they vigorously throw it up and down and the wind blows the chaff away. Satan was going to violently shake the church. He wanted to violently shake the disciples in the early church, and he did. Peter sifted, Satan sifted the early church with persecution, with martyrdom, with prison, and even sometimes with ridicule as Peter will tell us. But all these different things shook many people's faith. But Jesus commissions Peter, this unstable man, to strengthen his brethren. See, Jesus saw on the Sea of Galilee a rock, someone to fortify his church, to fortify our faith. He chose Peter and he called Peter this man who had experienced the highest highs and the lowest lows. When he first met him, he renamed him. He said, your name's Simon, but I'm going to call you Peter. I'm going to call you Rock. And then when Peter confessed him, he said, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And then at the hour of his death, he commissions Peter explicitly to strengthen his brethren. In Acts we see the Apostle Peter strengthen his brethren mightily. He is the leader of the early church. He faces imprisonment and violence for the cause of Christ. He's the one who gave us the powerful phrase, we ought to obey God rather than men in Acts 5.29. But in another way, Peter is still obeying this commission, and he does it through 1 Peter and through 2 Peter. Peter wrote these epistles to strengthen not only the early church, but to strengthen us. Peter fortifies our faith. God fortifies our faith through Peter. See, Peter wrote to give us an unshakable faith that the author of the Hebrews talks about. The faith that confesses we're strangers and pilgrims in the earth. The faith that looks past what we can see and casts its anchor firmly in that which is unseen. A faith that clings tightly to the world that cannot be shaken and to the kingdom That cannot be moved in this first epistle the fisherman peter tells us to remember we're just pilgrims again chapter 2 verse 11 he tells us to lead holy lives we are to live as citizens of a kingdom that we have not fully seen yet and so we're supposed to be good citizens in this world chapter 2 verse 13 to 15 we're supposed to be good spouses chapter 3 verses 1 to 7 he tells us to suffer well because jesus suffered for us Two twenty to 24, 3, 14, He says to do all of this because we're citizens of that unseen country. We look for the appearing of Jesus Christ. We look for the revelation of Jesus Christ. We wait for the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter wrote this letter so that we would stand, so that the readers of this letter would stand. He wrote it because Jesus told him to strengthen his brethren. We should expect ridicule, We should expect some to think us foolish, but when we place our hope where Peter directs it, when we look forward to the unseen, when we listen to God speaking through the fishermen, we can stand. Now, we can intellectually believe in the world to come, but it's hard when prayers go unanswered, when healing doesn't come, when the cares of the world seem so large And Peter knew this better than anyone. The man who wrote this epistle is the man who fell so many times because he got distracted by the cares of the world. But it's through this man, this weak, simple fisherman, the man who had the highest highs and the lowest lows in the New Testament, it's through this man that God has chosen to strengthen his church. In C.S. Lewis's novel, The Silver Chair, the heroes. Jill, Scrub, and Puddleglum. And if you're not familiar with the apocryphal literature, (laughs) Puddleglum is a Marshwiggle, which is a tall, thin character with webbed feet and hands. Um, They're trapped. So they escaped a giant's castle. And they fell down a deep, deep hole into the Underland. And the queen of the Underland trapped them in her dark castle. And the queen of the Underland's mission is to convince these heroes, Jill, Scrub, and Puddle Blum, that overland is just a dream they had. Underland is the only real world. Her dismal kingdom is the one true reality. And so she has an incense that she lights in a fireplace. And the incense begins to fill the room, and it deadens the senses of the heroes. And she begins to plant doubts in their mind. Were, was the sky real, or was that a dream? <coughs> Were stars real? Or did they just imagine them? Was Aslan real, or was that a story that they'd made up to entertain themselves? And slowly, under the influence of this comfortable delusion, the heroes begin to doubt that the Overland, even Aslan, this Christ-like figure in the story, they begin to doubt that any of it was ever real. And maybe it all was just a dream. Finally, Puddleglum has had enough. He does something very brave. He goes over to the fireplace and takes his big webbed foot and stamps on the burning incense. And then he says what I'm going to read. And I think his words here summarize our struggle to see the unseen, and in a way, summarize Peter's words to us to anchor our hope in the world that we cannot see. So we're going to listen to this as he steps into the fire. It says, The pain itself made Puddleglum's head for a moment perfectly clear, and he knew exactly what he really thought. There is nothing like a good shock of pain for dissolving certain kinds of magic. One word, ma'am, he said, coming back from the fire, limping because of the pain. One word. All you've been saying is quite right, I shouldn't wonder. I'm a chap who always like to know the worst and then put the best face I can on it, so I won't deny any of what you said, but there's one thing more to be said even so. Suppose we have only dreamed or made up all those things. Trees and grass and sun and moon and stars and Aslan himself. Suppose we have then all I can say is that, in any case, the made-up things seem a good deal more important than the real ones. Suppose this black pit of a kingdom of yours is the only world. Well, it strikes me as a pretty poor one. And that's a funny thing when you come to think of it. We're just babies making up a game, if you're right. But four babies playing a game can make a play world which licks your real world hollow. That's why I'm going to stand by the play world. I'm on Aslan's side, even if there isn't any Aslan to lead it. I'm going to live as like a Narnian as I can even if there isn't any Narnia. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your servant, Peter. Thank you for calling this fisherman from the Sea of Galilee to become a man who would write a letter that we'd be studying 2,000 years later, as many miles away and in a different language. Father, I pray that you would help us in the coming months and years um, in our personal life and as we come together and discuss this letter. I pray that you would use this letter to strengthen your church. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he came to earth as a model, as someone who could be tempted like we are, but get through this world without sin. Thank you that he died for us on the cross and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day. And thank you for Peter, a man who, like us, is so weak, who's failed so many times, and we know that however many times we fail, we can look at Peter's example and see a man who's not perfect at all, uh, but who confessed you, and you've used so greatly. Father, I pray that you'd be with us as we go from this place. Help us to live holy lives. Help us to place our hope in a kingdom we cannot see, Give us faith, Father. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name I pray, amen.